Hello, 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 and welcome. Welcome, everybody, to the Cloud English Podcast. My name is Luke, and today is Sunday, August 27th, 2049. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. I hope you're ready to learn some English today. We're going to be talking about, broadly speaking, history. We'll be learning some vocabulary and phrases that you can use when you're talking about the past, when you're talking about history. We are going to be looking at a letter written, and we're going to analyze the style of that letter and talk about what it means and how much language can change over time in just a short, you know, fairly small number of decades. And we're going to also be talking about what is the other thing? We're going to be looking at some specific English idioms, talking about the origins of those idioms, and trying to understand if knowing where they come from helps us learn, or how they can help us learn if we want to remember them that way. So we'll be exploring those as well. And we have a few other things as well. Again, welcome. It's great to have you. So... At the top of the show, just a few things to mention. If you would like to support the channel, if you enjoy or have enjoyed my videos or live streams, podcasts, please show support by hitting the like button or the thumbs up or wherever you have a button that you can use to show support. Uh, if you're listening on, for example, Apple Podcasts, you can leave a five-star review. That would help tremendously. And for Spotify, you can do that somewhere as well, <laughs> probably. Uh, if you are listening and you'd like to watch, you can do that on YouTube and Facebook. If you're watching and you'd like to listen, you can do that in the links in the description. Um, you can join the Discord, which is free to join. Honestly, not too much happening there. We have a word of the day, but a lot of people use that as sort of the way to reach out to me. If you have questions or concerns or whatever, that is a good place to reach out to me. Let's see. What else? Um, you can grab a free course, Natural English Conversations. That's in the links in the description. And... You can also grab a yearly membership 30% off in the links in the description. So check that out on the website. And for those of you who enjoy my courses, there is a course sale happening on my new course. Why don't we just take a look at that quickly? So you may have seen some videos that I've done about chat GPT and learning English English. English. English with ChatGPT, well, guess what? I have actually created a full course on the topic, and it is currently only available on Udemy, and there is a launch sale happening, and the code is launch. So grab that while you can. Let me just show you what that looks like. Uh, let me have to search myself on Udemy first, and then I'll bring that up for yes okay so here we go let's let's hop over to uh, the screen share here okay so yeah 
Right, 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 right. So this t course at the top here, you see me with space in the background. It says, achieve English fluency with AI. And then ChatGPT, Google, and more. And so it, it is does include ChatGPT, but it's not only that, right? So then if you go in here, Udemy is currently running a sale, so you can get you can get the sale price through that. But if you would like to help me out on that, you'd put in the coupon code because then I get credit for that. Uh, I get credit for that sale. That's how the the referral deal works, right? So you would go here and you click on apply coupon and enter coupon here and you put in L-A-U-N-Z-H. Oops, H and let's see what we get. Oh, there we go. Launch is applied. So apply coupon. There you have it. There you have it. And look at this. My most popular course, Building Your English Brain, currently has almost 70,000 students. That is getting pretty crazy. I recently learned that this is one of the most, the, uh, the, the language courses, not just English, but the language course with one of the highest number of reviews. 19,000 ratings, 4.6 stars. Wow. Well, wow. not bad if I do say so myself. And this course has been around for a while. As you can see, I launched it in 2016 and it hasn't been touched since then. It's uh, an, meant to be an evergreen course. It's not, has nothing to do with, you know, what's going on in, you know, in, the, in tech or anything like that. It's an evergreen English course. And I also, on Udemy, just reached 200,000 students. So I'm quite proud of that as well. And you can feel free to check out my courses. There's currently a big sale going on on Udemy. So for a limited time, I don't know how long that's going to last, but it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. All the courses have really good reviews. And then there's just this one course, which is lower than the others. And I can't figure out why. I think it's, I, it's one of my best courses that I've ever done. I just got a couple of, I, often there's a, sometimes there's a, a difference between people's expectations, what they were expecting to get from the course and what they, what they got. So I suspect for this particular course, which I think is again, a really good course for English learners, I suspect some native English speakers somehow got filtered into this course and thought, wait a second, I, 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 there's you know stuff here for me, but it's not for me, this course. Yes, that's right, it's not. But I suspect that's where some of the reviews come from. Anyway, all the other courses, 4.7, 4.7, 4.6, 4.7. Anyway, not too shabby, huh? Not too shabby. All right, so let's get into our lesson shall we shall we shall we shall we shall we all right so we're going to start with some history vocabulary and i will be checking the chat since we are here live if you have any questions i'll be happy to answer those if i can but um yeah let's get started let's get into it Diego says, I don't miss your podcast. Thank you, thank you, Diego. I appreciate that. And Aral20 says, hello, 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 hello. Abdul Malik says, 
It's been a while. Hope you're doing well on Facebook. Huh, thank you. I am. Hope you're doing well as well. Malik. All right. Getting into the historical vocabulary. When you talk about history, you have to know some common words that aren't that difficult to learn. We're going to talk about some words. We're going to talk about some phrases. Fairly simple. Once you know these, you'll be able to talk more intelligently about historical things. That's pretty simple, right? So let's do that. Starting with vocabulary and then getting into phrases. So just simply, if you want to talk about time periods, right? You want to talk about 100 years, you want to talk about 1,000 years, you want to talk about 10 years, you want to talk about a general period that isn't a specific number of years. How do you do that? So an era is a fairly general period of time, and you can attach different descriptions to it depending on what you want to talk about. So you might talk about an era of music, right, that is represented by a certain style or a bunch of styles that were happening at that time. That was a very important era in the history of music. Okay, what era? Maybe you're talking about the uh, the classical era, the era where where there were a lot of classical composers like Mozart and Beethoven, sort of the, the flourishing of this form of music. Maybe you want to talk about it that way. But you could talk about an era of your own life. Yeah, that was a really tough era for me. Well, what era? Maybe the time when you were traveling around the world or the time when you weren't traveling around the world. So it's very useful, this word era, because it's quite adaptable and you can kind of mean what you want to mean when you use it, right? And it's not, uh, it's not a particular period of time. It's not like five years or 10 years. It's whatever you say it is, right? Now, if you said well, it depends. Could it be a million years? I suppose so. Yeah, if there's something climate related, maybe there was a period, uh, I don't know, a million years ago for 20,000 years where temperatures spiked or something. You, I suppose you could call that a, a, an era of cooling temperatures or whatever. Yeah, you can do that, I suppose. So it's all quite relative. Now, what about century, millennium, and decade? Actually, I think it should be millennium, century, and dec decade if I were going to order this a little differently. So a century is simply 100 years. When you say a century, you're talking about 100 years. But the interesting thing about the word century is that we often put something in front of it, like 17th, 15th, 13th. You often hear that. Now, this can be confusing for people because, for example, the year 1431 is not the 14th century. It's the 15th century. And if you actually think it through, the year from the year 0 to the year 100, that was the first century. But that was, that was from 0, right? And so the second century would be the ones with the 100s, right? So, for example... Um, 119, that would be the second century, not the first. So, for example, the 15th century, we are now in the 21st century. Even though the year is 20, 23, 20, 29, sorry, uh, 2049, what did I say? <laughs> Whatever the year is, we're in the 21st century, 
not the 20th. So it's always kind of one ahead of the number that you actually say when you say the year. Now, millennium is not a million years, it's a thousand years. So this word is not as common as century because often when we're describing a period of time and we want to use a large, let's say, period, we're going to choose a hundred years rather than a thousand because we don't often talk about events happening in thousand year chunks. I suppose if you're talking about geology or something like that, it might be more common. But if we're talking about history, human history in particular, we're usually focusing on hundred year chunks, right? And then if you go before zero, then it's BCE or BC, sometimes I guess more common BCE now, that would be counting the opposite direction, right? So 300 BCE is actually closer to us than 400 BCE, right? And then you have 2000 years from zero to us or 2000, however many years it is when you're 22, 2049 years plus whatever it is in front of the zero, right? And so you would say, for example, the third century BC or the third century BCE, right? Decade simply is 10 years. This is where we can start talking about our own lifetimes, not history so much, but our personal history or recent history, right? A turbulent decade in this country's history might be the 1960s or something like that. Often for um, American history, we use not 19, but we use just the number at the end. So the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, right? So this is the decade. And we know what we mean when I say the 60s, because that couldn't be the 1860s. Now it's going to get interesting when it's, for example, the 20, 20, between 2010 and 20, now let's say between 2020 and 2030, right? Previously, when we said the 20s, we meant the 1920s. So what's going to happen after we pass through this and now we're in the 2020s or we're past the 2020s and we're in the 2030s? Then we might have to start saying the 1920s or maybe we'll have another way to talk about the 20s, meaning 2020 to 2030. <laughs> It's kind of complicated. All right, so that's how we can simply, fairly simply talk about time periods. A few other very useful words to talk about things in history for people and things. One would be a historical figure. Now, don't get any confusion here. Figure, you might think, well, that could be anything, right? That could be a rock or a statue. No, a historical figure is a person. It's not a group. It's not a... Uh, it's not a statue, it's only a person. So an important person in history. Does it mean that this person is a good person? Are they an important person in a positive way or a negative? Doesn't matter. Could be a, a, a monster, it could be a, a warlord, it could be anybody who is someone we talk about in history. Then we could talk about them in a positive or a negative way. Historical figure says nothing qualitative about that person other than that they are worth talking about as a person in history, right? Now, when we come to things, though, we might talk about a thing as an artifact. Now, an artifact would be an object that we would have, for example, in a museum, like an old gun from 
the Civil War or a sword or a, a statue or something like that that comes from a previous period of time that we have today that we can look at to learn something about the past. So if we say this is an important artifact, then maybe it's worth preserving. Maybe we should take care of it. Maybe we should put it in a museum, right? This usually is for something we do have today. We might not refer to things that were important in the past that we don't have today. So for example, if there was, I don't know, an object that people talked about in the past that was a very uh, important historical thing that people had, uh, maybe a, a culture had 500 years ago, and we don't know where it is today or it was destroyed, we probably, we probably would not refer to that thing as an artifact. We probably would refer to it as an artifact if we can talk about it and look at it and study it today. Usually that's how it works. Now, what about a landmark? Now, a landmark is interesting because this could be simply a notable place where where you know we can go, we can visit, we can talk about that has nothing to do with history, right? Like um, on the old highway Route 66, there are these different weird stops and uh, maybe it's an old diner or something or just something that's not really part of well, I suppose Route 66 is part of history, but let's say it's just some interesting thing, like a giant pretzel that someone has built or whatever, and people go there and see it because it's weird or different, right? That's a landmark. So anything could be a landmark if it is a place or a thing in a particular place that people can talk about and go. However, we can also talk about a landmark as a place often where a thing happened. So in the same way, it's a place that people can talk about and go, but now it's not a landmark because there's a giant walnut statue or something. Now it's historically important. So it's a landmark that's important because of a thing that happened there. And so that would be something like a battlefield, the Battle of Waterloo or something like that or a, the Battle of Gettysburg, right? There are a lot of landmarks that you could go to visit to try to reflect on history or some important historical event that happened there. And then you might then see something to commemorate. Commemorate is a word we, we didn't uh, write down for this, but commemorate would be to, to try to remember something, usually to try to appreciate something that happened in the past, or to create something that is going to make people pay attention to it, right? A memorial would be the thing that would do that, perhaps. Often a memorial is meant to commemorate the service of people or sacrifice of people in history, often soldiers. So you might see a memorial where many soldiers died to fight for something. Or sometimes you'll see a memorial where something horrific happened. Maybe there was an explosion and, a, and people died. You might see a, a memorial there to, to remember those people. So a memorial is a place where people create something like a statue or a plaque or something to remember something that happened. Could be some, some sacrifice, could be some service like soldiers, but also could be 
uh, the place where a disaster happened. For example, if you go to Manhattan and you go to the south part of Manhattan, you will find the 9-11 Memorial. It's very beautiful, but this is a place to remember the events of 9-11. And uh, it's a, you know, a tragedy, not necessarily remembering service, but also a place to remember the firefighters who, who uh, often, many of them died uh, during 9-11, on 9-11, and after due to the effects of exposure to hazardous materials, right? So it's, it could be for both types of things, okay? So some useful words there. What about if we want to talk about events in history? So just a few things particularly in, relate, in relation to wars. So often in history, the things that shape events are wars that happen. When we're talking about history, we often talk about war, right? So revolution is when one group rises up and overthrows another group, perhaps. Or one group pushes back against something. You can have softer re revolutions. For example, you could have an artistic revolution as well, right? A revolution doesn't always have to be war. Revolution, it just means to have one group rise up and replace, or one thing rise up and replace what was there before in a kind of dramatic, dramatic way. An invasion, though, is typically about, uh, let's say, a military doing something to another military or going into a country or something like that. Typically, typically, but not always. So uh, one country invades another, one group invades another group, right? That would be an invasion. But sometimes you'll hear the word invasion used in other cases. For example, the British invasion. If you hear the British invasion, that sounds like that could be related to a war, but it's not actually. That has to do with all of the British pop stars that came over to America and became very popular in the 1960s. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, right? That was the British invasion. So that had nothing to do with war, but it is referencing that. And so you will hear it used in that way too sometimes. A treaty is when two powers or countries, or three, I suppose, or four or five, come together and say, okay, we're going to make a deal, basically. If this happens, we will support you in this way. If that happens, we will support you in that way. Or perhaps there's a peace treaty where there has been fighting, and now it's going to stop because the leaders get together and say, okay, we're going to stop under these conditions. So that would be a treaty. So it's a fairly general type of agreement, usually that takes place in relation to war, You'll hear it talked about in other ways, too, similar to invasion, but it's, it's generally referencing uh, uh, military uh, conquest, uh, you know, battlefields, things like that, okay? An alliance would be similar in some way. The treaty might be, for example, the agreement between the two, right? But the alliance is sort of more like the word friendship. An alliance is when you, a nation or a group or an individual have a an agreement with another nation or group or individual individual and now because you have that you are allies we are allies 
So you can use allies for your friends in specific situations, usually if you're going against somebody, right? Maybe there's some work politics happening. Let's say, oh yeah, we're allies in this, right? We're allies in this struggle to change these dumb policies in our workplace. Well, these two countries are allies because there are so many allies in this area maybe one country wouldn't dare attack any other because there's this uh, large group of allies. There are these countries that are all allies, and if one gets attacked, they will all fight back. So it's used fairly generally. But again, referencing, usually when we think about it, we think about uh, nations uh, having relationships or agreements that tie them together in some way. Now, what's the difference between a rebellion and a revolution? A revolution is when <laughs> perhaps it works. Uh, you have one group rising up and replacing another, or one thing rising up and replacing another, somehow changing what was there before. A rebellion is simply a group of people going against, going against in some way. A rebellion could succeed or fail, right? You could have a failed rebellion. This is where maybe... Um, there was a, the movie Spartacus is based on a rebellion of slaves and um, they rose up and they fought against their oppressors and they failed. <laughs> so it's a failed rebellion. So generally speaking, it's just the description of what happens when one group rises up against someone or a group who is oppressing them or uh, uh, treating them badly uh, in some way, right, generally. Now, you can use this in a very ordinary way, a rebellion of your children against you, the parent. My child is so rebellious, right? He rebelled against everything I taught him. So his upbringing, he rebelled against everything. So the same, same thing. And in fact, in the Civil War in the United States, in during the Civil War, the South were the ones who tried to secede or leave the Union of the United States of America. They were called the rebels, right? That was called a rebellion of the South against the Union. And so they, they were called rebels, the South. The soldiers of the South, they were all called rebels, I think. I think they would call them, the short term was rebs. I think I've heard that, but short for short for rebels. Okay, now just quickly, a couple of expressions that you may need when you're talking about history. During the Middle Ages, that period of time. During, that means within that period of time. What period of time? The Middle Ages, during the 1960s, right? During this war, during anything, during some event. That means we're going to now dive into it and explore within it, inside of it, to understand something, right? At the turn of the century is to mark something. Now we're not necessarily talking about being within a period of time, but saying when something happened. Specifically in this case, at the turn of the century, when one century becomes another, so from the 19th to the 20th, from the 20th to the 21st, when it clicks over, for example, from 1999 to 2000. That would be at the turn of the century. If you want to make it more broad and more general, then instead of at, you would say around. Around the turn of the century, right? 
at about the turn of the century, something like that. In the wake of would be after. We often use wake to talk about the water that is, uh, let's say, disturbed by a boat or a ship, right, moving through. And that, that shape that comes out behind it like this, that is the wake of the ship. Well, think about historical events in the same way. In the wake of this battle, in the wake of this war, in the wake of the Great Depression, in the wake of whatever, something happened in history, and as a result, a bunch of things followed in the same way as the water is disturbed by the boat passing through it. So it's kind of the same idea. So you're talking about the consequences of some thing, usually, that happened. Now, if you want to talk about a particular moment that is very important for the outcome of something, a war, or maybe a new government, or whatever it is, that would be a pivotal moment. A moment where it could have gone this way, or it could have gone that way. And if it had gone this way, things would have been very different, for good or bad, whatever. But it would have been very, very different if things had gone this way, as opposed to this way. Things went this way, so they turned out this way. But that moment, that was a very important moment, and it could have gone the other way, and that would have been very consequential, so that was a pivotal moment. And you can talk about pivotal moments in your life. You could talk about pivotal moments in your career, right? So you can use that for more ordinary things. I think you're starting to see here that a lot of these words and phrases, like a revolution or a rebellion, we can talk about in these grand terms of wars and history and worldwide events, but we can also use these same things in our own lives to talk about ordinary things like my career, right? A pivotal event in my childhood, for example. Then when you're reflecting on the past, when you're thinking about history, when you're thinking about what you learned, when you're thinking about your own life, you can say with hindsight, right? This was the right thing to do. This was the wrong thing to do. With hindsight, I think we were too hurried. Uh, with hindsight, we say that hindsight is 2020. Uh, that means when you look back, you can see, okay, we did this wrong, we did this right. Generally, you can see things more clearly because all of the stuff that happened has happened, right? And you can see how it turned out. With hindsight, I think there should have been more regulation on the banking system that probably would have avoided some of the difficulties that happened in the housing market in 2008. So yeah, you can say that with hindsight, there should have been more regulation, but at the time, because everybody's inside of it, that's not something that most people maybe thought of or knew about, because when you're inside of it, it's kind of hard to see everything that's going on, right? And again, you can use that for big things like uh, an economic event, right? I was talking about the recession of 2008 caused by the housing market crash that happened, and that was caused by some uh, mortgages and investments that looked that looked solid, that looked safe, that were actually not, right? Because of a lack of regulation. Well, it's easy to say with hindsight what should have happened, right? But you could talk about your own life in that way too, yeah. Last week, um, I I decided to 
maybe instead of prepare for my interview, uh, go out with my friends because I thought I wouldn't really need the prep because I, I, you know, I know everything that that I could possibly want to talk about. With hindsight, I realize I probably should have been more well prepared because they asked me some really challenging questions that I did not expect. So with hindsight, eh, I probably should have spent more time preparing for that interview. Okay, so these are some common words and phrases that you can use to talk about not only history, but also things going on in your own life. You can see how they're kind of working on two different levels. If you have any questions about these, please let me know, okay? I would be happy to answer any questions in the comments. If you haven't already done so, feel free to grab a free course, Natural English Conversations. That's in the links in the description. And also, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe. All right. Regime is a pejorative way for a totalitarian government. It's a pejorative way for a totalitarian government. Regime, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that's right. That makes sense. Hello. Hedge, hedge dear. Hey, hello. Welcome. How can you make designs? Not quite sure I follow your question there. How can I make designs? How can I make designs? We got another, we got a question coming up that I'm going to answer a grammar question. So that's coming up next. If you have any questions that you'd like me to answer, feel free to to ask. I'll do my best. I'll do my best to answer them for you. Okay. Give me one second. All right. Again, guys, if you would like, you can join the Discord. That's free in the links in the description. The Discord is a good place to connect with me. If you have questions for me directly, it's a good place to do that. Could you give me advice for improving my English? It's such a general question, uh, Jan. You know, I think I, I make courses to answer that question, basically. You have to you have to immerse yourself in the language. You have to you have to start thinking in English. You have to build your English brain. You have to constantly be working, but not in a way that you hate. You have to find things that you enjoy about the journey of learning English. You have to surround yourself with it. You have to have conversations. You have to find an outlet for practicing. You have to probably uh, create a schedule for yourself so that you're regular. It's very easy to sort of say, yeah, once a week I'll do a little bit. But you have to, you know, have to be diligent. You have to work consistently, just like getting better at anything. It's no different, I think, than than really getting better at at anything else. In my personal opinion. All right, let's go over to, we are going to answer a question. 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 Give me a second, guys, here. 
and we'll get right into it. All right. Heading over to the blackboard for the question. Make this slightly bigger, can I? So we have a question from Miles. And Miles asks, what's the difference between an essential and a non-essential relative clause? What? Well, let's just write down the pieces here, okay? So we have, I'm looking at the board here, right? Hi, board, okay? That's why I'm looking here. So essential and non-essential. Essential and non-essential. Essential and non-essential what? Relative clause. A relative, hello, relative, Why is my pen stuck together now? <laughs> what the? Oh, hold on. Clause. <laughs> Why? What? My pen is being weird. Hold on. Let me fix my pen. There we go. <laughs> okay, it's it's sticking together. It's sticking to itself for some weird reason. Okay, so what would be some? <laughs> this looks. This looks like someone who someone who is experiencing some, uh, let's say, uh, uh, cognitive issues. Uh, perhaps writing things down here. We'll do our best. My pen is my pen is is behaving oddly. I think maybe it's time for me to get a new tip. I don't know if I bite it. I bite the end. Can I pull it out there? Let's see if that works. No. Well, that's very weird. <laughs> It's very weird. It's like there's there's glue between them. Uh, okay, 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 okay. Hold on. Sorry, guys. I just skipped that one. I gotta buy a new pen, a new pen and board. Goodbye, my old friend that I've had for many many years. My Wacom, my dear Wacom pen and board. It's finally time, sir. I shouldn't be angry at you. I should thank you for your service. You've been you've been with me for so long through so many lessons and courses. I should be I suppose I should be grateful rather than angry, but still useless pile of junk. <laughs> All right. So, we're going to move on to some idioms. And so let's do that. I want to talk about some idiom origins. Now, when it comes to learning idioms, the interesting thing is that there's usually a reason that it is what it is. Whether that reason matters depends on the type of learner you are, right? What is the origin of this idiom? It doesn't always make sense. It's not always obvious. We're going to explore a few. And I'm going to suggest that you decide whether you're the type of learner that benefits from knowing the origins or not. And if not, it's okay. But if so, 
you might find that knowing the reason why an idiom is called what it's called can actually help you remember it. If you're a sort of visual learner, then I would suggest that the origin can help you create a little movie in your head that's going to help you remember the meaning of it and the idiom itself, right? Again, if that's the type of learner you are. Personally, it helps me to know as much as possible about something that I'm trying to learn because then I can kind of look at it from different angles. So we're going to be exploring Bite the Bullet, Break the Ice, Saved by the Bell, and Turn a Blind Eye. And again, we're going to be looking at the origins of these idioms because, well, they are interesting. It's quite interesting. But when we're going through these, I want you to try to make little little movies in your head if you can and see if that helps this idiom stick. So let's, why don't we get started with bite the bullet, okay? So let's start with bite the bullet. When you hear bite the bullet, what do you think? Well, obviously there's a bullet like from a gun and I can bite it. Hopefully it doesn't explode or something. Right. Yes, that's right. That's what it comes from. But it's more historical. So before we had general anesthesia, when you would cut off a leg or something, having your leg cut off would be extremely, extremely painful. So, and I don't know if this is only from, uh, only from British soldiers, but in general, this comes from soldiers who needed to have limbs amputated usually, right? So generally speaking, if you got shot in the leg or something or got shot in the arm, you would be at risk of something called gangrene where it would get infected and become gross. And so a lot of them had to have that leg or that arm amputated, cut off. Now, if you have anesthesia, that's not going to be that painful. If you don't, they're just going to cut it off. And so you'd have, you'd bite down on a bullet to deal with the pain, right? So that's where it comes from. But what does it actually mean in everyday normal language? Because we're, you know, not usually walking around having our arms and legs cut off, right? Well, generally, this is to face a specific situation bravely. Now, this can be used in a lot of different ways because it could be something very ordinary or could be something fairly huge in your life, right? So here are some examples that we might use. When the budget cuts came, we had to bite the bullet and work with fewer resources. So that means in our company or in our team, right, basically we had this budget and the budget got cut down by, I don't know, 30% or something. So we have to do the same amount of work with 30% less resources. Wow. So instead of complaining, let's just bite the bullet and figure it out. So it's kind of like saying, let's just, just, just do it. Be tough, be strong like that. That's kind of the feeling we get, right? But it could be something completely different. It could be something very ordinary like, you go to a coffee shop and they don't have your favorite type of milk. Maybe you like to have oat milk in your latte. And 
you say, oh, can I get an oat milk latte? And they say, I'm sorry, we don't have oat milk. And say, you say to yourself, okay, I'll just bite the bullet and get almond milk, <laughs> right? So <laughs> that's obviously a very ordinary situation, but you wouldn't be wrong to use it in that way. So there's a huge spectrum. But again, our mind can go back to that little movie of seeing the soldier ah, biting on a bullet while their leg is getting cut off. And that might help us remember this particular idiom. Facing a dental appointment without sedation was tough, but I bit the bullet. Sometimes the dentist doesn't use anesthesia to do a cavity. That happened to me once. They said, hey, do you want, do you want anesthesia for this small cavity? And I said, well, is there a, you know, a difference in terms of recovery or something like that? And for whatever reason, they were recommending that I just do the cavity without any anesthesia. And so I said, okay, let's do it. So I just bit the bullet and dealt with the discomfort, right? Of having them kind of drill at my tooth without having any anesthesia. I don't remember that. I don't remember the exact circumstances there. Okay, let's talk about breaking the ice. Breaking to break the ice. Well, it used to be, actually it still is, that ships, there would be, a special type of ship called an icebreaker that would during the winter or during let's say in a place where there are a lot of there's ice covering the water they would have a special thing at the front of the ship to cut through the ice to create essentially create a path so that other shipping containers uh, shipping vessels and passengers could actually make it through so they're literally <laughs> breaking the ice to allow uh, to allow other things to happen, to allow shipping containers to move, to allow passengers to get where they need to go, right? So if you think about it that way and you create that little movie, that's the initial thing that you say, the little joke that you tell, the little comment that you make that is essentially breaking any awkwardness that might exist in a social setting. So to break the ice generally has nothing to do with boats and nothing to do with ice. The ice is the, when you get to a social event, there's this slight awkwardness that's kind of there, right? That's the ice. To break the ice is to share a funny story that makes everybody laugh, to make a comment that relaxes things. So an icebreaker is, in this case, a thing that then makes everybody feel, oh, okay, relaxed so they can actually socialize so that there's no more awkward tension, right? So to create that relaxed atmosphere, something first has to break the ice. At the beginning of the school year, teachers often play games to break the ice with students. Maybe at the beginning of the year, it's a little awkward. Students are getting to know each other for the first time if they don't know each other already. So play a game that might break the ice. A good joke can break the ice and ease tension during a meeting. So maybe it's a formal meeting, a serious meeting, but you want to break the ice to make, feel, make people feel like they can contribute and, and, and share and they don't feel uptight and nervous, okay? But again, play that little movie in your head. We have a couple more that we're going to do here. Saved by the bell. Actually, there was a TV show in the 90s 
called Saved by the Bell. Saved by the Bell, because it was a TV show about students in school, referred to the actual bell that would end class so that you would go to your next class. The bell that rings, that says, hey, class is over. And so that it suggests that something awkward is happening, right? Or something difficult is happening, or something maybe that was about to be much worse was happening, and then the bell rings and we can escape the situation. Now, that's often how it's used in ordinary sort of daily situations, but in the 18th and 19th century, people had this worry of being buried alive. And this is because there were some conditions that made people look dead, but they weren't actually dead. And then several days later, they would wake up and found that they they would find that they had been buried. <laughs> that would be pretty scary. And so they had a, as I understand it, a string connected to them underground, their toe maybe, and the string would go up through the ground connected to a bell. And if the bell would ding, 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 ring, then they would know, oh, actually, uh, they weren't dead. We have to dig them, dig the body back up and then find, oh, it's not a body. It's a, an alive person. We buried an alive person. There are actually several idioms that come from this. One is a dead ringer and one is saved by the bell. So that's the, that's the origin. But how do we use it in our daily lives? Rescued from a difficult situation, a difficult social situation. And it's often a thing that happens that rescues you, right? You're about to... Uh, you're, 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 you're in a difficult situation being asked tough questions and then somebody comes over and says, hey, can I borrow you for a second, right? Oh, uh, say I saved by the bell, by someone coming over at the last moment, right? During the interview, I started to stumble on a question, but I was saved by the bell when they announced a break. Uh, I was about to basically blow the entire interview, but I was saved by the bell because they said, okay, everybody, time for lunch. Let's resume the interview later, something like that, right? As the conversation became more and more uncomfortable, the unexpected arrival of a friend saved them by the bell. Now, this is a much less common usage where you hear saved someone by the bell. Oh, I was saved by the bell is common. She was saved by the bell, perhaps, but the friend saved them by the bell. Less common to use it with this structure, less common to use it with this format, but still you will hear it sometimes. Okay, finally, the last one we're going to talk about is to turn a blind eye. To turn a blind eye. Now, in this one, the general origin of this is attributed to an admiral, right? Admiral Nelson, who, this is what I've heard, uh, held a telescope to his blind eye to avoid seeing a signal to withdraw his forces, and that allowed him to continue fighting. So, essentially, to, to put a telescope to an eye that can't see is kind of useless. He's basically saying, I know what they're trying to tell me, I know they're trying to tell me to pull back, to withdraw, but I don't want to because I think what I'm doing is the right thing. And so what I'm going to do is pretend like I looked 
and didn't see it. So, because he had a blind eye. Whether that's true or not, the way that we use this nowadays is to say, I'm ignoring something, but I'm not doing it by accident. I'm intentionally not looking. I'm intentionally not trying to find out the truth. I'm intentionally saying, I don't know nothing. I, don't, I didn't see anything. I'm not looking, right? To allow something to happen. This could be a situation where you have a close friend and you don't want to get them in trouble. And so you pretend you didn't see them do the bad thing because you don't want to see them get in trouble, right? Many people turn a blind eye to the small print when signing a contract. So I, I, you know, I know there's some scary things in there, but I'm just gonna go ahead and sign it because I need to get this stuff done, right? You could use it that way. She turned a blind eye to her friend's misbehavior choosing loyalty over principle. So her friends are acting badly. Maybe they're doing something even legal and she's just mm, pretending not to notice anything because she cares more about her friendships. She cares more about having her friends and them not being in any trouble or perhaps legal trouble rather than following the law or, or, or following some kind of principle that she has. No judgment on that, but that's just a common thing that you'll see. Recently, I've been watching videos. I don't know why I've been on this weird binge where I there are these there's this YouTube channel about police officers getting arrested, right? And uh, now it's uniform practice for police officers to wear body cameras. And so there would be, for example, a drunk driver. And the drunk driver will turn out to be a police officer. Uh-oh. And so police officers maybe don't want to arrest other police officers. right? They don't like to do that. And you often hear them say in the video, uh, I, I ha we have to do it. It's the rules. Cameras are on. And they say, cameras are on. Cameras are on. We're recording. Cameras are on. What that means is if the cameras weren't on, they would turn a blind eye and they would just let them go. Okay, I don't want to arrest another police officer. Just go ahead and get out of here. But now that they have to have a body camera, they have no choice but to follow the rules. So they can no longer turn a blind eye. Okay? So those are the common idioms. We talked about biting the bullet, breaking the ice, being saved by the bell, and turning a blind eye. If you have any questions about these, let me know. Try to use them. Try to make some sentences to figure out how to use them. You can also use ChatGPT to get more examples. You can go to the free dictionary and look at examples of each of these there as well. That is a great resource for getting definitions and examples of common idioms. Again, any questions, let me know. If you haven't already done so, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe and also get a free course, Natural English Conversations, in the links in the description. Okay. Hello, everyone. Hello, Ruslan. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Let's see if my thing is still not working. No, I'm just... I'm going to give it another chance. Come on, thing. Come on, thing. Come on, thing. <laughs> I, I don't want to give up, you know. I hate to give up. 
So this thing, I don't know what this is, or I know what it is. It's the the nib of the pen, but I'm not exactly sure how it works. But whatever the case is, it's it's having trouble registering actual pen movement, right? On the uh, on the canvas, so that's the issue. All right, I'm not going to try anymore. I'm done with this. I'm done. I'm done. Promise, I'm done. But I will take a little coffee break. That's important. And we have one more one more thing I want to I want to cover. We have a video to watch. We've got a little video. Okay. I feel bad for people who are just listening who hear silence as I sip my coffee. A little ASMR for you, right? Un unrequested ASMR. I hate ASMR. I hate it. I think it's I think it's incredibly annoying ASMR. Some people find it relaxing. It makes it helps them sleep. I, I, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. Sorry. Sorry if you like it. I do not like it. Uh, Fazeldad Khan says, from UAE, doing a great job. Thank you so much. Roslan, yes, it is a good coffee. I made it myself. It is an Americano, which is very, very tasty. If you guys haven't already done so, again, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe if you'd like to support the channel. And um, you can also join the Discord, which is free to do. Uh, the courses are 30% off the yearly membership, which is a pretty good deal. If you want to grab uh, all of those, you can get access to all of those 30% off. And... Let's see what else. After this, I think I'm going to go for a drive with uh, the baby. Uh, he's so if you don't if you don't know, I recently had a son, and his name is Pi, and P Y Pi, and he he's uh, a tiny baby, and so you know there's it's not super easy to go out with him, but. We're trying to do it more and more to get used to going for drives, to get used for to going for walks, putting him in the stroller. Just kind of getting used to it is um, something we we're trying to do. You know, after the first month has passed and we're kind of getting into a routine, now trying to learn how to go out with him is the next sort of the next challenge. It's not easy because you have to he he has to eat every two hours. He must eat three hours two or three hours it depends he's on his own schedule i mean um but yeah so that's fun that's interesting i think it's interesting um so i think that's what's i think that's what we're gonna do later today maybe maybe we'll see the english language continues to change over time i think it's changing very fast right now as the language spreads around the world, it picks up pieces from around the world and kind of gets spread throughout, right? 
meme culture is also there. Internet culture is also there. I think the I think the English language is changing rapidly. And so it's interesting to reflect on how quickly it it happens. From only well a little more than 100 years ago, we can see the differences. In fact, if you just go back to the 1980s and you look at a video of someone just on the street talking or interviewing someone, you'll see the way that people speak then is different from how people speak now. You'll see it immediately. Go back to the 1960s. You'll see it there too. And of course, it's different for different countries. But let's just simplify it to say, because I'm American, let's say, in the United States. Within the United States, American English, let's say, go back to any time before now and see if you can pick up differences in TV show interviews, documentaries about something going on in that time, the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And you'll start to pick up things that people are saying that are just different from what you may be used to now or what you may be learning now. We're going to go all the way back to the Civil War and listen to someone reading a letter from a documentary, uh, someone reading a letter. And we're going to pick out some of the words that they're using, talk about whether those are common or not. Okay, so let's, uh, let's hop over to... Let's hop over to this uh, to this letter. This is a, a video of a letter. Uh, we could have just looked at the letter, but you know, I, I like to I like to listen to it if we can. Okay, so we're gonna be pausing this as we go along, right? And um, I want you to just pay attention to anything that you feel like doesn't sound like modern American English. And if you hear a baby crying, that's because there is one crying. But don't worry, someone's on. Someone's taking care of it. There's a baby, a baby carer taking care of the baby. I'm not just uh, watching a video and letting a baby cry. <laughs> I'm not the only person here. Don't worry, someone's on it. I don't know if you can hear it or not. I'm hearing a baby cry. <laughs> All right. All right, let's go let's into it. Honorable manhood is this letter. Um, a week before the Battle of Bull Run... Sullivan Ballou. Uh, by the way, this is the American Civil War. I'm looking down here. I'm looking at the video. The American Civil War. Okay, so this would have been what year? 18, 1860s, I guess, probably. A major in the 2nd Rhode Island Volunteers wrote home to his wife in Smithfield. July the 14th, 1861. Okay, so here's the letter. 1861. Okay. 1861. Wow, okay. So... A long time ago? Let's see how different the language is. Washington, D.C. Dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days. The indications are very strong. So now we have to also notice something or note something. Even, you know, today there's a difference between written and spoken language. Right? People write often in a slightly more formal way than they speak, right? I would say the gap between written and spoken language has become smaller. Um, it used to be that there was a huge gap between formal written English and regular spoken English, as well as formal spoken English and regular sort of colloquial spoken language. But even though there's a gap today, the gap 
the gap during this area probably would have been greater, right? So we're already hearing a high level of formality that almost sounds like, oh, you're just talking to your wife, right? When I text my wife, it's like, uh, hey, um, wait, what, what are we going to have for dinner? <laughs> Very casual texts, right? Married couples text each other and say, well, what, are you, what are you doing? <laughs> all spelled incorrectly, all lowercase, right? Uh, you know, people used to write letters to each other. Uh, on the battlefield, a man writing a letter to his wife. My dear, <laughs> this is very formal stuff. Oh, the, the indications are, whoa, this sounds very formal. Perhaps tomorrow, unless I should not be able to write you again. Let's stop here. Lest I should not be able to write you again. Lest I should not. So first of all, this is antiquated English. The modern way to say this would be unless I am not, right? Unless I am not able to write again. Unless I'm not able to, instead of write again, we would probably say get in touch again, right? Unless I'm not able to get in touch again would be the modern way to say, in this case, kind of formal sounding written English, lest I should not. It almost sounds slightly Shakespearean, right? Uh, again, totally out of date to use lest. Nobody uses it anymore. It's it's not common at all. Let's listen to that again. Very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow, unless I should not be able to write you again. And lest I should not be able to write to you again. And lest. And lest. Okay. Okay, here we go. Let's keep going. I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall. We didn't even, I didn't even mark that one, but I feel impelled. Again, we don't use that so much at all in modern English, including written English. Impelled. I'm, I'm, I feel like I should, basically. I feel like I should do that. I feel drawn to doing that. I feel like I must do that. Okay. Under your eye when I am no more. I am no more means I'm dead, right? He's... He's being realistic that he thinks... He's being a little dramatic and romantic about dying. I think, you know, I feel like when I hear this or when I read this letter, this guy's got a death wish for sure. He likes the romantic idea of dying, in my opinion. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which... I, I feel no misgivings and have no lack of confidence about the cause... No misgivings. So if you have misgivings, and this is a, you can use this word. This is a fairly formal sounding, but still relatively common word. If you have misgivings, it's like having doubts or concerns. Eh, I don't know about this. Maybe we should do it. Maybe not. I have no misgivings. Means I have no doubts. I have no concerns. I'm, I'm fully confident in this. Where we're about to do, do a road trip, uh, and I have some misgivings about the plan because maybe we're uh, maybe planning to drive, I don't know, 800 miles a day, and I think that's too much or something like that. I have misgivings about it for some reason. Maybe I don't think we've budgeted it correctly or we're going somewhere dangerous. I don't know. I have some concerns, some doubts. He has no misgivings, no concerns, no doubts, right? Let's go back. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged. The cause in which I am engaged. So the cause is one meaning of a cause is a 
thing, a movement that you support. Right? This is a cause that I believe in. Not cause in the sense of, uh, you know, the butterfly landing on the rock caused it to roll down the hill, but cause in the sense of a, a movement or a, uh, a thing, an idea that you believe in, that you are behind. That is a cause, noun cause. Well, one of the meanings of the noun cause. And my courage does not halt or falter. My courage does not halt or falter. So halt means stop, pause, to halt. That's perfectly normal, natural English. Falter is less than halt. It's more like stumbling. Like if you were to walk along and you stepped weird on a rock and then you kind of went like that, but didn't totally fall down, you falter, right? Or when you're speaking, you're trying to talk and then you you, you fault, you get, you try to say something and it didn't come out of your mouth. So you're kind of faltering there as well, right? So halt or falter, He's very confident in the cause that he supports. I mean, he's a soldier. He's willing to die, right? He's saying basically, hey, wife, uh, just want to let you know I'm probably going to die, and that's okay. <laughs> I find this letter very weird because this letter is held up as this, you know, oh, is it sacrifice for his country. This man is maybe he's very patriotic. Maybe I'm just a selfish person, but I but I feel like this guy wants to die. And he's trying to make it romantic with the letter. Or I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how American civilization now leans upon the triumph of the government. American civilization leans upon the triumph of the government. American civilization leans or rests on the triumph. That means the success, the victory of the government. I think he's, he's talking about, well, America at this point is less than 100 years old when he's writing this letter. Um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty fresh. How great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. How great a debt we owe. If you owe someone a debt, you feel like you owe them. If it's very, very big, you would describe it as a debt. I owe you a debt, or I, I owe you a debt of gratitude. Those who came before, and when he talks about the revolution, he's talking about the Revolutionary War, in which America gained its independence from the British. Triumph of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing. But you have to admit, I mean, no, no matter what you think of this guy, he's very poetic. He's a really good writer, right? He's got a sense for creating drama. He doesn't just say, I'm grateful that the revolution happened and, uh, you know, I'm very supportive of the government. The blood and suffering of the revolution He's really vivid with his language, which is very interesting. I mean, he's clearly a great writer. I wonder how many drafts he went through. I wonder if he used ChatGPT. Willing to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government. Willing, perfectly willing to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government. Lay down his joys in this case means 
sacrifice them, give them up. Right. And to pay that debt. Pay that debt. Pay a debt means you feel you have a debt, pay it, you don't have it anymore. So the debt is to his people who came before, the history, the government. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. My love to you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that only omnipotence can break. So he's now he's getting into the romance of his letter. So first he's saying basically, hey, listen, I'm about to die. Why? I love my country a lot. Um, but I love you and my love for you is deathless wow deathless wow that means if i even if i die i still do and he's bound with mighty cables cables like that hold a bridge up a suspension bridge that only omnipotence can break well that would be something like god something as powerful as a god we often ascribe omnipotence and omniscience basically ultimate power ultimate knowledge ultimate power in the case of omnipotence only the power of, a, of God could break these mighty cables that bind me to you. Except my love for my country and my willingness to die for it. <laughs> Being too harsh on this guy. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind. There you go. My love of country comes over me. To come over me is sort of suddenly... Uh, suddenly a, a feeling of dizziness came over me, swept over me, right? Or a sense of nostalgia came over me, swept over me. It's the sudden thing of, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. And then it's there, right? Cool mustache, by the way. I like the, it's got a nice shape, right? It's got like an upside down V going on here. And this guy's thinking, man, I love this lady so much, but... <laughs> And bears me I'm not laughing. with all those chains to the battlefield. I see. He's drawn to the battlefield. The memory of all the blissful moments I've enjoyed with you come crowding over me. The memory of all the blissful moments I've enjoyed with you come crowding over me. Wow. Wow. And blissful means, of course, happy, joyful pure bliss we often use as a noun pure bliss means perfect happiness i feel most deeply grateful to god and you that i've enjoyed them for so long oh i want to Crowding cover one over thing me. all those chains to the battlefield seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break and yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly with all those chains to the battlefield my love of country bears me irresistibly with all those change, chains to the battlefield. I've simplified this a little bit. To bear you somewhere is essentially it takes me there. The wind is bearing him. What is the wind? The wind is his love of country. So he first says, hey, listen, wife, love you, but my love of country, more. So the wind is this thing that's taking him even though he has these chains tying him to his his wife and how much he loves his wife to wanting to serve his country 
in the battlefield, right? His love of his country. It bears me, pulls me. The wind we often, or you hear in stories and things like that, the wind bearing someone somewhere, right? Often you hear that in mythology. The memory of all the blissful moments I've enjoyed with you come crowding over me. And I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that I've enjoyed them for so long. And how hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years. How hard it is for me to give those up and burn to ashes the hopes. So this is a this is a dramatic image. Again, note his usage of metaphors to create images. Now, this is just a commentary on writing in general. Yes, this is formal. Yes, some of it is kind of antiquated. We can tell it's not from, you know, 1994. This is how people would write in the Civil War. This is very poetic writing with a lot of vivid imagery. So we have these images of cables and chains and wind carrying people things and omnipotence breaking them and how powerful things are burning to ashes so he could just say you know uh ending my my hopes he's saying burning my hopes to ashes so basically saying i have hopes for the future hopes with, for for time i could spend with my family my ch watch my watching my children grow up and yet my love of my country and my willingness to fight for my country burns those hopes to ashes, to nothing, basically. So that's a pretty dramatic and vivid, very I think it's a very interesting image, at least, right? When God willing. And how hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years. When God willing, we might still have lived and loved together. When God willing, that's something that you used to often, eh, maybe sometimes still, sometimes maybe still see inserted when, it would be when, comma, God willing, comma, we would see our children grow up, right? So that would be just saying, you know, if God wishes that to happen, if that is the will of God, then it can happen. Basically saying, hey, listen, I want it to happen, but only if God wants it to happen too. And see our boys grown up to honorable manhood around us. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I loved you. Loved? Past tense? I mean, yeah. Okay. Nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield. See, this is where I start to think that maybe he's over-romanticizing death. It makes me think there might be something psychological going on. It's possible that it's because I personally cannot imagine placing country over personal stuff. I just can't. I'm sorry. That's just my personality. I, I don't, uh, to me, the level of the country you come from, it's just like, uh, yeah, okay, nice, great. But what I die for it personally i can't even imagine it my personality no uh i can imagine dying for some things that are very important right but the i just can't process that level of patriotism and i don't maybe that says more about me than this guy but 
At the same time, I do feel like he's kind of over-romanticizing death on the battlefield, right? Uh, it almost sounds like from this letter that he wants it to happen in a way, in a weird, perverse way. He's saying, basically, when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, basically saying, you know, right as I'm about to die, I'm going to say your name. Okay. I mean, all right, I guess. Nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. He's got this romantic idea about war and battle, in my opinion. Forgive my many faults Forgive and the many, many pains faults. I have caused you. Forgive my many faults. Faults means things that are wrong about you. Faults is a common word that we use today. I think probably now we would be more likely to use problems. Forgive my many problems. Forgive, forgive all of my... It's actually, instead of my many, now the more common phrasing would be all of my... Please forgive all of my problems or issues. Please forgive all of my issues. He's saying the same thing here. My many faults. Fault in this case, and not saying that's my fault to one thing, but my many faults, my many issues, my many personal problems. You know, maybe um, he gets stuff stuck in his mustache and it stays there for days and starts to smell weird. That would be a fault, right? And he wants her to forgive that, forgive that. How thoughtless, how foolish I have sometimes been. But oh, Sarah. So I, I'm not, I don't want to make it seem like I'm dismissing this. This is a powerful letter. It's beautifully written. It's amazing. Um, I'm just trying to also examine the psychology behind it. If the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they love. If the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen. Flit unseen. Unseen would be you can't see, right? Okay, but flit. Flit is like a butterfly or a, a little insect and in how it flies. If you picture a, a, a butterfly going bloop, bloop, from one flower to another, bloop, 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 it's kind of flitting. It's a very kind of light motion or movement from one thing to the next. I flit, I float. Right? I think that's a line from The Sound of Music. Uh, it's sort of this light flying movement that you would imagine a butterfly having. Well, okay, he's saying to flit unseen. He's saying if the dead don't totally die and they come back to this earth, then I will flit unseen. Basically saying I will, you know, I'll be right back here. I shall always be with you in the brightest day and the darkest night. Always. Always. And when the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be... When the soft breeze fans your cheek like a fan. Be my breath, or the cool air, your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Do not mourn me dead. Do not mourn me dead. Do not mourn. If you see mourn like this, mourn means to have grief or sorrow, usually when someone has died. So if someone is in mourning, they're in a period where they are dealing with the grief as a result of someone passing away, right? If you say, I'm still mourning, I'm still experiencing grief, 
I still haven't emotionally recovered from this loss, right? That would be someone who is in mourning or a mourning period, for example. Do not mourn me. Do not mourn me dead. This guy's not dead, but he he's pretty sure he's going to die, right? And he's writing this letter to say it, basically. He's saying, don't be sad that I'm dead. Okay, so he's saying, I'm going to die, but don't be sad when I am, basically. Do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone. Think I am gone. And wait for me. And wait for me. For we shall meet again. Now he's basically saying, I think in the afterlife, we're going to meet again. So I think a very interesting, beautiful letter. We can see the level of formality is much more than we would see in a normal letter. People used to write each other letters, very romantic letters. One spouse would write to another and the other would write back. This is not a common practice anymore in the age of texting. There's a sense in which something has been lost in that because, because there used to be this norm of wanting to be poetic and romantic to your spouse in that sort of way. Now we do it perhaps in other ways, but in terms of writing, not so much. So there's something that I think has been lost in the form of how people used to communicate. I really like that there used to be this way of expressing thoughts and feelings in a, in a certain style, which was very careful, very formal, often very poetic. In the case of a, a spouse, very romantically. In the case of a friend, in a very articulate and intelligent way. If you read some you know, old letters from the, let's say, 17th, 18th century, 19th century, you get this sort of sense of, wow, these people really put a lot of thought and care into these letters. Now I just send a quick email or a quick text. Uh, <laughs> and so what is lost there? We can also see some of the language differences, right? Not just the level of formality, but some of the specific words and phrases that are a bit different and the overall style which might be a, a bit different as well. If you have any questions about, uh, about any of these words and phrases, or if you want to share how, how you think maybe uh, we express ourselves today, what that means, right? Does it mean that we're less romantic? Or does it mean that we just express those same feelings in a different way? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. If you haven't already done so, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe. And also get a free course natural English conversations in the links in the description. All right. Okay, okay, okay. I listen to you always in the morning with when I go to university. So I want you to give us formal medical words. Okay, formal medical words. Okay, we can maybe try a topic on that. That would require some planning on my side, of course. All right, friends and neighbors, I think we're going to call it a day. Thank you all for joining. For those of you who are here live, I appreciate it. We'll be back next week and uh, next weekend. So if, if I missed anything, uh, let me know. If you have any questions, let me know. I do weekly questions. I was going to do one today, but we had some issues with this board, which if you've been through my courses, this is what I have written everything on. And it is officially now retired. So goodbye, my board. Goodbye, old friend. It's been, it's been what? Five years, board, friend? But I'm going to replace you now with someone with a better one because now you are just a piece of junk to me.
I shall, I shall mourn you. Gone, board. Goodbye, sweet board. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Wait a second. I hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's do one thing very quickly. Uh, I'll open up uh, ChatGPT here, and I'm gonna say. Um, write a write a formal romantic letter in the style of a 19th century Civil War letter um, to my Wacom, my Wacom art board, which I am going to throw away because it is broken. Uh, I want to thank it for its service. Okay, let's see what we get with ChatGPT here. I'm just gonna read this, I'm just curious what we get. Okay. As I sit before you, my thoughts are heavy, marred by the impending distance that shall soon befall us. My dear, oh, the, the uh, right at the beginning it says, my dearest Wacom artboard, I find myself compelled to pen this missive a humble testament to the irreplaceable role you have played in my life. You have been my confidant, my collaborator. In the quietude of solitude, you bore me witness. You bore witness to my most intimate artistic endeavors. Your surface, though now worn and battered, was once the canvas of limitless possibilities. We fought in the trenches of creativity together. And for that, I am indebted. However... I must acknowledge the inescapable reality. Your time has come. The sensitivity that once captured my subtlest touch has waned. <laughs> and your responsiveness dwindles like the last rays of a setting sun. Our alliance can no longer sustain the rigors of artistic warfare. You shall be laid to rest, but know this. Your legacy endures in every stroke, line, and hue that you have allowed me to manifest. You are the unsung hero behind countless works of art, an indispensable instrument in the grand orchestration of my creative journey. And so, as you find solace in the depths of the discard pile, <laughs> remember that your spirit lives on, immortalized by the art you helped bring into existence. <laughs> Until we meet again in the annals of memory, I bid you farewell, my steadfast companion. Yours in eternal gratitude. Look pretty. Wow. Amazing. Ah, so touching. And with that, thank you all so much. Don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe if you haven't done so already. Also, join the Discord. That is free. Grab a free course, Natural English Conversations. Get 30% off the annual membership to get access to all my courses. Again, all the links are in the description if you want to listen and you're watching. 
go ahead and check that out in the links in the description. If you're watching and you want to listen, go ahead and check that out in the links in the description. And I will see you all next time. Bye-bye and have a great weekend.